Well, we are going to keep asking this question, what are you protecting? And you would do well if you want to engage in this to ponder uh, anytime, all day long if you want. What are you protecting? How would you answer the question? It's a good question. Well, we go to scriptures and we go right back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. You do well uh, during this series to have your Bible up on your phone or on an iPad or if you actually brought a real, a real Bible, um, a dead tree Bible. Uh, if you would like to um, look at this, it's good because you get to spend some time with your eyes uh, pondering the scripture as you look at it over and over. And see what other things you learn. So, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. This is Moses at the burning bush. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the the Hivites, um, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has has now come to me, and I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I'll send you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. And that is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they're going to ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, and thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. And God also said to Moses, then you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and of God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. Ah, yes, everyone. Exodus, second book in the Bible following Genesis, probably just It's got to be everybody's favorite in the Old Testament. It's so full of just good story, good narrative. It's got the party in the Red Sea. It's got the burning bush. It's got the let my people go. For old timers, it's got Charlton Heston in there, even though he said really bad things. So, you know, I mean, you got all sorts of good stuff going on uh, in in Exodus. And it's a a good story. And on, on the other side, I think we all secretly like Exodus because it's just so trashy. It's just got really misbehaving people, primarily Moses. That Moses, how scholars like to sit around and just play armchair psychologists and therapists with Moses uh, is just no more fun than having uh, a good day at Moses' expense. So let's get familiar because we are doing four maps here during the month. And uh, at least for the first four weeks. And so let's begin. So if you recognize this, this is the Nile River right here. This is Egypt. Yes, it's called the land of Goshen in the Bible. Here's Ramses. This is where Pharaoh is. This Nile River flows into this uh, delta, this alluvial fan here. And you can see how far it's pushed out into the Mediterranean Sea over the the millennia. And um, so if you bring up like uh, Google Satellite, 
right? If you bring up a satellite view, you will see that this is all brown. Every bit of this is brown. And then this wedge right here, this triangle is bright green. Very, very fertile. Uh, a great place. Um, it actually, during the Roman Empire, they wanted this area because it supplied bread to the entire Roman Empire. Everybody wants to be in Egypt because it, it, feeds, it feeds everything. So here you have the Gulf of Suez uh, and the Sea of Reeds or the Reed Sea in here. And uh, then you go down here. Here's the Red Sea, the Gulf of uh, Aqaba. So here's an interesting thing. I uh, looked this up. The Gulf of Suez is 230 feet deep. Guess how deep the Gulf of Aqaba is on the Great Rift? Over 6,000 feet deep. And it's not even the deepest sea around here. So the Great Rift runs right up through here, through the Dead Sea, and then the Jordan River, and then you can't see it, but the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was raised, is up there. Now, you have then two paths going on here. There's a red path and a blue path. The red path in scholarship is the traditional path where they go all the way down. It's hard to see because it's in blue, and this is Mount Horeb. This is where uh, Moses encounters the burning bush and so forth. And we're going to get to that in a moment. And then it continues the red path. The traditional path goes all the way on up here. And here they stand at the Jordan River to go over into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Later scholarship says, well, they probably just actually went this way. What they did not do is just take the short path here because of these people right here, the Philistines. Philistines, that same tribal warrior people that Goliath is from. Large, vicious. Don't go that way. So, there you kind of get your map put together. You also then, by the way, all those ites out there. You have then the Midianites, the um, Moabites, the Edomites, you know, the Canaanites, all these people. Negev just simply means in Hebrew, it means south. Anytime you see the Negev or whatever, it's just a broad general term for the southern region. Okay? So, Exodus, it's full of lessons that And it's impossible to do justice to the story of Moses and the Hebrew people in such a short amount of time, like on a Sunday morning. You really need a whole class on it. So with, with absolute certainty, this is going to be too brief. But let me just highlight that I think the stuff in here that gets us to where we need to be as far as living each day. This map helps us because the exodus, as you can see with the word ex in there, the, that part of the word, it's an exit journey. They are leaving Egypt, okay, to return. Now, the red line on there is the traditional journey, and in traditional scholarship, this journey took place around 1876. I'm not sure how they get it so precise. 1876 BC, right? This is almost 4,000 years ago. And it goes, um, they, the, the uh, Hebrews were living in Egypt from 1876 until... Um, 1446 BC. So 430 years right there. So from the time of Joseph, yes, Joseph with the Technicolor dream coat. Joseph, you know, Joseph, Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Get the lineage going on here. We're back to Abraham, which was this far map over here from last week. So here you have Joseph. And so from the time of Joseph, 430 years pass in traditional conservative type of thinking. This I tend to cotton toward. I tend to go toward the conservative part on this particular things. Other things I tend to go to the late scholarship and some other thinking on it. But in this particular case, I like the the red line on here, the red journey. So if you remember from Genesis, 
Jacob's son Joseph is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. They threw him in a well and then somebody found him and he actually ends up sold to slavery into Egypt and he becomes Pharaoh's secondhand man, right? So Joseph actually is in the, the court of Pharaoh. This really, really helps uh, the, the Hebrews, his family and the, the lineage of Abraham goes on and helps them survive in Egypt. As a matter of fact, it's actually pretty good in Egypt. Yes, they are second class citizens. Yes, they are slaves. They, uh, they do get paid in some respects, but not really. They have a good life. Remember the big green fertile valley around the whole alluvial fan there of the Nile area? It's actually, they eat, they have, they have flocks, the whole thing's going on well, and they build the cities uh, of Pharaoh. But then, as it always goes with tyrants and dictators, Pharaoh gets nervous because the Hebrews are doing so well, they're multiplying all over the place, really rapidly. And Pharaoh says, we got to do something about this because what if the Hebrew people who are slaves, my workforce, what if they actually teamed up with one of our other enemies, one of these other ites out here, and then they just threw us out? So, I'm going to limit the number of Hebrews being born, and I'm going to make their work really, really hard to make them suffer. So that's what he does. He makes their labor very, very difficult uh, and uh, makes it hard on them to live. And so um, God steps in then because he's heard the cry of his people living in misery. And God steps in and calls Moses to let my people go. That's Moses' job, right? Now, a lot of the drama in Exodus is the crazy life of Moses. Moses is supposed to be uh, slaughtered as an infant, if you go back to his birth. He's supposed to be slaughtered as an infant um, by Pharaoh's attempt to limit the number of Hebrews in Egypt. So he tells the uh, midwives to actually just snuff out the babies uh, as they're born. Okay, rather vicious. Remember, this is not the 21st century. So... Moses' mother's onto this, and Moses' mother then takes the baby Moses and puts him in a papyrus basket and seals it and then sets him off onto the Nile River. And his older sister follows along, watching the baby Moses float along. And lo and behold, the baby Moses in the basket bumps into Pharaoh's daughter who is bathing in the Nile River. Lucky Moses. His name's not Moses, by the way. She names him, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses, which means drawn from the water. And that's where Moses gets his name. Well, the daughter who had been following along says, I know a nursemaid. Do you need a nursemaid for the baby, Pharaoh's daughter? Why, yes, I do. Well, here comes Moses' mother along. How conveniently. Coincidence, right? I think not. I don't think so. Didn't really go that way. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. I mean, he's royalty. Now, Moses knows, and everybody else knows, that he's Hebrew. They know that, okay? It's not a mystery or some secret. One day, Moses, being a Hebrew, sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a slave, and Moses gets angry. Moses has anger issues. And he kills the taskmaster. Moses gets found out and he goes on the run. He runs and runs and runs away from Pharaoh and he runs all the way to the Midianites, to the land of Midian, 
all the way over here. So he goes all the way from here. Who knows how he gets there, but he probably takes a big swim here in 6,000 feet of water. I don't know. He probably didn't. And, um, or ship or whatever. And he ends up over here in the land of Midian. About a, in other words, how far can you get away from Egypt? That's how far he went. That's what Moses does. Moses uh, is not chased by Pharaoh then. He happens to be a good dude at this moment. He helps out some really sweet sisters with their flocks because there were some evil shepherds there who were keeping them away from the well. And they go home and tell their dad, Jethro. And so then he marries one of them. Her name is Zipporah. And Zipporah invented the, the uh, lighter. No, I'm kidding. She didn't, not the Zippo lighter. So uh, Zipporah and um, Moses lives a good life in Midian. Nobody knows that he's a murderer. Nobody knows his true identity. Nobody cares. He marries Zipporah. They have kids. They have a family. He becomes a shepherd. They have a big business going on. It's all great. They are living the life. And nobody knows any different and where he came from. And then, and then comes God. Just like our lives. And God calls Moses to lead the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. And next then, if you know the Exodus, the book of Exodus, there are going to come all the plagues. The last of those plagues against Egypt to let my people go is the death of the firstborn children in Ramses. But the angel of death does not kill all the firstborn children of the Hebrews because they took the blood of a lamb and a brush and they dipped it and marked the post and lintels of their doorways so the angel of the Lord, the, uh, the angel of death of the Lord would pass over, pass over by the blood of a lamb. Wink, 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 coming in tractions here about 1,500 years later, you'll have Jesus, the Passover lamb. Through his blood, the angel of death passes over. Get it? You're like, oh, it's all coming together for me. So that's the Passover. Well, Pharaoh's son dies. Pharaoh relents and says, get out of here. Leave. You got what you want. Leave. I'm sick of you people. And then about three days later, Pharaoh changes his mind. (laughs) And he says, I just sent away my entire workforce. So that's the doodah here where you like, hey, we're going to go. No, no, run, 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 run. Three days. And then they're standing here. It's a sea of reeds. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever wandered through like some cattails or some cane grass, you know, or whatever, that's like up above your head, this is extremely difficult. Not to mention that you could be up to your neck in water instantly, and it's, there's crocodiles, and there's lions, actually. There's even lions in the Holy Land uh, back in the, uh, third, the first century B.C. Um, so they are trapped there, and Pharaoh's army is coming after them, right? Well, God parts the water. The Hebrews pass through on dry ground. Not so good for Pharaoh's army, who chases them along. And, of course, the water comes back in, and they are all drowned. So, and as the old joke goes, uh, you know, the scholar says, like, well, the Sea of Reeds was only six inches deep, you know. So, and then the person says back to him, and the whole army drowned in six inches of water? You know, like, hmm, that's kind of crazy. So it just kind of goes that way. Well... Now the trip to Canaan, if you think about it, if you do a little geography, if you, if you put it into your maps and you do on foot instead of in your car, you can make this journey in about two to three weeks, except look out for the Philistines. So God sends them south, really far south, way on down, 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 down. There we go. All the way down Mount Horeb. 
They wander in this wilderness, that Sinai Peninsula, for 40 years. That's an entire generation. The people who left, the adults who left Egypt, do not enter the promised land up here in Canaan. They only get to look at it from this side, the east side of the Jordan River. They don't get to possess it, but their children do. These Philistines, they turn the Hebrews south. And that begins their wandering. So, many, many lessons happen out here on this journey. It's full of spiritual lessons. It's full of life lessons. Good and bad lessons, mostly bad lessons. This is learning from the negative here. But here's what I've learned from the Exodus. And it's about us humans and our relationship with God. The entire Exodus journey could be viewed as your journey. You could put yourself into this journey as your own life, as it cycles and turns and goes through things. When the Hebrews were in Egypt for 430 years, they begin to forget who they were. Slowly, some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History becomes legend, legend becomes myth, and the people of God become just people. We would call them today secularized. Back then, they may call them pagan. But mostly, they were just people surviving in a foreign land, 400 years, generations and generations. They don't know really who God is. They just have a faint memory that they are the people of God and that they had some ancestor named Abraham. But they've forgotten. Now, in Egypt, you live by the Nile River, And each spring, the Nile floods right on. You could set your sundial to it. It's so predictable. You know exactly when a certain kind of frog begins to chirp. And you know when you're supposed to have your grain and your seed in the ground. And then it floods. All you have to do is when the Nile River floods, as you come along with your hoe or a stick or your foot. And you kick the dirt clod out of the little irrigation paths. All the crops are watered. And then you put the dirt back. And it all grows massive amounts of wheat and barley and everything else. It's very, very easy. You don't need God. (laughs) You don't need God when you live in the Nile River Valley. You don't, there's no want. Unless you become slaves. Everyone, every one of us begins our spiritual journey in the land of Egypt. We are all functional atheists even if you're raised in the church. You begin your journey self-dependent, doing your own thing. Like, I got this. I'm good. I'm going to make it all happen. I don't need no God. Ah, but then comes stage two, the wilderness journey, the waterless desert. The exiled Hebrews, they thought of God as this big genie in a bottle, vending machine God who grants anything you want. And believe me, the Hebrews behave badly in the wilderness they throw temper tantrums they yell at God they complain they hold their breath until they turn blue and God gives them whatever they want they wanted water they said we don't have any water well then they ask for water and Moses in his anger strikes the rock and out comes the water Moses got anger issues and next they want bread we don't have any food and then this manna stuff manna actually means in Hebrew means what is it it 
is not even a thing. And it forms on the ground, and all you got to do is go out and pick it up for six days of the week. And then they say, well, we got water and we got bread and whatever else we can scrounge, but we want some really good meat. You know, so if you really want a good a reality TV show that goes badly, read Numbers 13. It, it, I chuckle every time I read it. It is one of the trashiest scenes in the Bible between God, Moses, and the people. And they all end up giving each other the silent treatment. It doesn't turn out well. That's out in the wilderness. And over and over, the people say, we want to go home. Moses says, that's not your home. Egypt is not your home. Canaan is your home. We want to go back to where we had potatoes and leeks and, you know, a chicken in every pot. We want to go home. (laughs) We move from being functional atheists. And then we move out into our terribly convenient desert. What? Terribly convenient desert? The desert's not convenient. Thomas Merton, he said it was a terribly convenient desert. You know why? Because in the desert, you can't do anything on your own. And so you, you scream and yell at God, and God gives you everything you want. Because God's a giver. Yeah, terribly convenient desert. Everything you want, bread, water, meat, it's all given to you. They even worship a golden calf, the Hebrew people do out there. They do a self-made religion. They make it up as they go. They do whatever they want. The Ten Commandments become nothing more than religious rules and holy do's and don'ts and religious moralism and fundamentalism at its worst. But then, after you've been a functional atheist in Egypt and you've been a terrible brat out in the wilderness, you finally... Go to Canaan, the promised land. Deuteronomy 11. First five books of the Bible are called the law, the Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, verses 10 through 12. For the land that you're about to enter to occupy is nothing like the land of Egypt from which you've come. This is Moses speaking to the people. Where you sow your seed and irrigate by foot like a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing over to occupy is a land of hills and valleys watered by rain from the sky. A land that the Lord your God looks after. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from beginning of the year to the end of the year. Deuteronomy 11. The land you're about to enter into, Moses says, being the voice of God, is nothing like Egypt. Where you just irrigate and you don't need God with its predictable Nile River. The land you're about to enter is nothing like the wasteland of the Sinai Peninsula. A vast, waterless, rocky place where you complain and God gives you whatever you want. No, 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 no. Your homeland that you're about to enter, the land promised to Abraham. That's why it's called the promised land. It's hilly and rocky and very fertile. And you will learn a new way to grow food. You will learn a new dependency upon the land. You will learn a new dependency upon God. You will have to clear the rocks, make the terraces, till the soil, plant your seeds, and then wait for God to bring the rain. This is the ultimate destination of the spiritual journey. After you've been a functional atheist, 
After you've been a terrible brat in the desert where God gave you what you wanted, everybody ends up waiting for rain from heaven with God. Have you done this in your life? Have you had several years or season, been through cancer, been through a loss? And you say, I've experienced all that. Where are you, God? We all start out in Egypt. We're slaves to the slaves of the world, slaves to the world's ways. We live in a culture that's godless. The world, it's not a terrible slavery, however. We grow accustomed to it. We begin to buy into the whole consumer dream. We begin to get the gods of money and entertainment and success and business and affluence. We all do it. We're all in the same boat. We're all living in Egypt. We easily buy our dream of having more and more, and we become bigger and bigger. I remember watching one successful man years ago, and you know they moved out and they had the pool and the 20 acres. I never spoke with this man. He was the, the father of a friend. Every time I went there, all I saw was that he was on his mower. The man mowed. I think on his gravestone, it's going to say, I mowed. And everyone around the, the, his grave will say, he mowed. Now, maybe he loved being out there in the mower. Like, that's his, like, burning bush. You know, like, that's eh, really peaceful out here. I don't want to go back there anyway. You know, maybe something like that. But on the other hand, he was a slave to his own mower. That's what I thought anyway. Maybe the American dream just sticks you on a mower your whole life. Egypt living, mindless, unspiritual. We should ask, shouldn't there be more to life than mowing and then, you know, getting a garage door opener and uh, two garage door openers and then telling your son and teaching him the fine art of how to have a garage door opener and so he can teach his son how to have a garage door opener and then it just goes on and on and on 430 years. Shouldn't we be asked that there's more to this? Shouldn't we wake up and ask ourselves, what story am I in? What am I protecting? We, we discover God. We leave Egypt. We find ourselves misbehaving in the desert. God, why did you ruin my marriage? God, why did you have me grow up in the house I grew up in with all that hell? God, how did I get myself into $15,000 of debt? That's your fault, God. You shouldn't, I shouldn't be in debt. God, how, how dare you, God? I'm tired. I'm angry. I'm burned out. I'm stuck on a mower. I'm lonely and I'm tired. The mindless mower sounds awesome. I just want to go back to living in slavery in Egypt. And oftentimes we derail on our spiritual journey and just go back to mindlessness. Or we just drift. But if it's, if it's pursued, if you go through the journey in the desert, you end up at Mount Horeb in silence at the foot of God. At the burning bush. You been through this? You taken this journey? Several times? Various amplitudes of intensity? Think about your relationship with God. Are you stuck between a mindless happiness existence in Egypt and a God you don't know how to live with and can't live without in the desert? At some defining moment, each one of us will stand at the Jordan River at that edge And we have to take that bold step into the muddy, snaggy river of no return with God. We move into a land where we must work hard and wait for the rain from heaven. And our spiritual posture becomes God. And then we just go silent.
we move into a place of utter dependency on God. It's just like the TV called Crossing Jordan. It's a metaphor. You cross the Jordan, there's no return. It is your Rubicon. The question here then has to be this. So is there a shortcut? You know, I mean, can you really take a shortcut in life? Or do you have to go through the wilderness? Whoops. Can you just kind of run over here? No, no, no. Philistine's waiting. (laughs) It's hard that way too. Every one of us has to take this journey and then stand at the Jordan. Now, it doesn't mean it has to be terrible. But that's the journey we all take. Everybody's just like these Jews. You and I are just like them. Like the old rabbi said, the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. I hope you cross the Jordan. I hope you take the journey into the wilderness. I hope you wake up in Egypt and figure out what's going on and ask the question, what am I protecting? What my, what's my life all about? What have I been doing? Who are you, God? What is your name? Can I utter it with every breath that I take? So, Lord, we are people just like the Hebrews on this journey. We don't know where we're at at the moment, whether we're in Egypt or in the desert or standing at the bank of the Jordan. But, God, each person here is on a journey. Each one has to recognize that you are God and they are not. Each one has to turn their eyes toward heaven and wait for rain from you. May it be so. May we wake up. May we not be asleep. And may we become the souls you always wanted us to be and be your children. In the name of Christ. And we all said, Amen.